Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Andy Mahler. Andy first became involved in forest protection efforts in 1985 after encountering Forest Service clear-cuts in the Hoosier National Forest near his southern Indiana home. As president of Protect Our Woods, a local grassroots forest protection organization he helped found, he led efforts to protect the Hoosier from off-road vehicle trails, clear-cuts, and oil and glass leasing. In 1991, he founded Heartwood, a cooperative regional forest protection network that used legal challenges and other means to stop logging on national forests in the Heartland Hardwood region. In the community of Orange County, Indiana, Andy led efforts to start the Lost River Market in Delhi, a member-owned natural foods grocery in Paoli, Indiana, and Orange County Homegrown, which operates a very popular local farmer's market. He also hosts weekly music jams at both locations. He and his wife, Linda Lee, own a rustic and eclectic farm and lodge called the Lazy Black Bear, surrounded by the Hoosier National Forest in the rolling hills of southern Indiana, where they raise, rehabilitate, and release orphaned possums and other critters. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. Thank thank you for being on the program again. Thank you, Derek. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I would love today to talk about cicadas. So can you just start us off? I can, and it's it, it, it they almost defy uh, understanding because of the peculiarities of the breed. I'll start with my first exposure to cicadas. Uh, I spent my formative years in the college town of Bloomington, Indiana, and I at, in 1970 I was living in a house towards the north end of campus, and I had a regular route that I would take away from campus, away from town, and to the the largest areas of forest around the city of Bloomington and towards a place called Griffey Lake, where I would go sit in the woods by myself. And this one year, when I was 19 years old, as I was walking out there, I encountered sights and sounds that I had never experienced before. I think I must have heard of them before, and certainly they are mentioned in popular literature and popular culture, sometimes referred to as locusts, though they are not related to locusts, which are in the grasshopper family. There are these things called cicadas. Now, within the cicada family, there are various subspecies, and various versions of cicadas appear and occur around the world, and mostly in temperate regions, I believe. But anyway, this experience of mine at the age of 19 was, I'd say, the first way in which it was uh, I received the information was through my ears because there was this extraordinary din and I had no idea what could possibly be making so much noise until I started seeing all these bugs and fairly sizable bugs probably about an inch and a half long flying around and then these insects in addition to making this and I hope that you have uh, found some some recordings of the cicadas because I think it would be useful for your listeners to hear this sound. Uh, it, it is an extraordinary rhythmic, pulsing buzz, drone, and screech simultaneously. And while you would see cicadas flying around at ground level, the overwhelming majority of those making this phenomenal sound this orchestral uh, continuum of screeches, buzzes, clicks, and whirs were way above me, up in the trees and even above the trees. And I couldn't see them, but I could hear them, and that's where it was coming from. It, sort of like the forest itself was breathing, but breathing very audibly. And I came to understand that these were the periodic cicadas. Now, there are, here in southern Indiana, and I suspect in most regions of the eastern United States, both periodic cicadas and annual cicadas. And the annual cicadas are astonishingly beautiful. Uh, And I would come to know and love them subsequently. But my first exposure at the age of 19 was to the periodic cicadas. And they're smaller they tend to be uh, mostly black, although their wings have a lot of orange to them. There's a fairly pronounced W in their wings. The wings are transparent, other than the veins. Uh, the eyes are deep red, so they're uh, 
lots and lots of these magical insects flying around and creating this extraordinary din. And it turns out that their Latin name is Magic Cicada, M-A-G-I-C-I-C-A-D-A, Magic Cicada or Magic Cicada, if you want to give that, uh, that first C a second sound. Magic Cicada, and they truly are magic. It turns out they're also known as the Pharaoh's Cicada. And I looked that up because I have not heard that term. But it turns out that the reason, one explanation anyway for why they are called Pharaoh's Cicada, perhaps it's some reference to you know, the locusts in the Bible, but more likely it's a reference to the fact that their sound, one of the varieties of cicada makes a sound that sounds very much like Pharaoh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Anyway, that was my first experience with the cicadas, and I found out that there are these numerous broods of them, and a brood just indicates that there are certain regions of the eastern United States where any particular population will emerge. And they do it, it might appear randomly because it's very different parts of the eastern United States each year, but it's predictable because they will uh, emerge in extraordinary numbers. There can be over a million of them in, in one acre. for it. And if you happen to be in a place where they're emerging, it's quite astonishing to witness, to feel, uh, just a little aside, in 2016, we were having one of our Hartwood annual events, which we call the Forest Council, in South Central Ohio, near the town of Portsmouth, or Portsmouth, if you use the local pronunciation, at a little camp, a Boy Scout camp, near the Shawnee State Forest. And I will never forget that the cicadas started emerging the night that we set up for the camp, and by the that would have been a Thursday. They continued to emerge on Friday, and by Saturday they were coming out of the ground in extraordinary numbers. And we, our event was being held mostly outside, and there was a podium set up, and people were assembled to listen to our featured speaker Saturday. I'm sorry, Friday night, and uh, you could see this poor guy shaking his leg as he was speaking, as the cicadas emerging from the ground were climbing up his leg as if it was a tree limb, which is what they do. Uh, and now to get to their extraordinary life story is that they live underground. And now, how do they get underground? Well, the mother cicada lays her eggs in small twigs on living trees up towards the extremities of the branches. In the, she will make incisions in these uh, narrow twigs and inject eggs in there, and they can lay hundreds of eggs in a season. And then the, those twigs will in time break off and land on the ground, and these eggs will migrate underground, and these tiny, tiny little organisms will attach themselves to a tree root and suck the sap from that root, and they will stay underground, literally, in the case of this, uh, the, the cicadas here in southern India, 17 years. And it's kind of hard to even imagine a species that can live to be 17 years where virtually that entire life cycle is underground, away from light, away from sound, away from companionship. Now, it is possible that there are communication mechanisms between and among the cicadas underground. If so, it has not been discovered or documented. So they, uh, they go through various molds underground at which they continue to grow in size. But they're, in the absence of light, they are sort of a ghostly pale white until they emerge. And are they, are they, are they grubs down there or are they, are they... they are essentially grubs. You know, if you were to dig one up in your garden, you would you would not know that it was a cicada. It looks sort of like a, a larval insect. It looks a little shrimp-like, for instance. It was curled. It's got the legs already. But you don't know what it is. It just looks like a grub, exactly. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah, so, uh, so people speculate about these numbers, about why. Because there's a, another species that is a 13-year cicada, and then the ones, like I say, that I mentioned that we have around here are 17-year cicada. And uh, it turns out that all of the cyclical cicadas are 
Well, the the numbers of years in their life cycles are all prime numbers. Now, you know, there may be some significance to that. There may not. But the speculation, of course, is that it makes them somewhat unpredictable for those creatures that feast on them. And as you might not be surprised to learn, virtually everything feasts on them. They have no defenses. They have no stings, no venoms, no biting parts, no stinging parts, no injections. They come out in as this very soft uh, little grub-like uh, insect that is it's able to crawl. That's about all it's able to do. And it has this impulse to climb. So it finds something stationary that it can climb up, a, a bush, a shrub, not so much grasses. It has to be fairly rigid because they've got to be able to, to cling and climb. So as they're climbing, they're exposed to the air for the first time in their entire lives. They climb and climb, and as they climb, their exoskeletons are starting to, to harden. And they climb as far as they can before the climbing is no longer possible. And at that point, when their exoskeletons are starting to harden and they can't climb anymore, a slit opens up in the back of their exoskeletons and they emerge from the only body they've ever known into an entirely new form. It's, it's quite remarkable. And, and your listeners should know that I am not a scientist. I don't claim any great scientific understanding of this, the, the life cycle of these insects. And there's obviously lots of information online. And people interested in learning more about the science should certainly check it out. But I'm interested in the cicada as a metaphor. And the cicada is an amazing and powerful metaphor for the power that I believe is available to each of us to be transformed in ways we can't even imagine. So you've got to think about these creatures that have been underground for 17 years. No sound, or if there is sound, dimly dimly perceived. There's no sight, except to the extent there may be fluctuations in the amount of light that penetrates to however many feet down in the ground they would happen to be. But essentially, they're deaf, dumb, and blind underground. And Yet when they emerge from the ground, suddenly they're exposed to this incredible array of light. They have quite well-developed eyes, so clearly there is significant amount of processing of visual information. Uh, they are dependent on sound for finding each other, so clearly they have well-developed uh, ability to hear and process sounds. Uh, but even more than what they see and what they hear for the first time is this transformation that occurs in them in their own physical form as they discover not only sight and sound, but they grow wings. They have wings. This uh, being that emerges from this exoskeleton that looks for all intents and purposes just like any other subterranean grub suddenly becomes this insect with stained glass cathedral wings, beautiful wings. Obviously, that is my perception of the wings. Whether they recognize how beautiful their wings are is a whole other story. But not only do they have sight and sound, they, within a matter of a few hours after emerging, discover that they have the power to fly. And not only do they have the power to fly, they discover that they are in a world that is densely populated with other cicadas, and every one of them has the same idea, and that is to find a partner and have sex. You know, they spend approximately two weeks, once they emerge from the ground, doing nothing but flying, singing, and when I say singing, you have to understand they are not making these sounds with mouth parts. They're making these things, the sounds with something called a timbre, which is just a, a por portion of their body, which when, when in contact with the wings, I believe, makes this sound. And it's quite remarkable because they say that the sound of these assembled cicadas singing to each other from the treetops is louder than a lawnmower. And I know this to be true because of, I've experienced it firsthand. Also, but another anecdote, 
a friend of ours who was living on our land at the time of one of the uh, uh, emergences. I believe this would have been 1987. He was a, an electric guitar player. That's what he did. That was his obsession, his passion. So he played loud electric guitar for a living, and he was wearing uh, uh, noise-canceling uh, headphones when he was working outdoors because the sound of the cicadas was overwhelming to him. This is a guy who, you know, was well practiced in the arts of feedback and electronic amplification, and the cicadas were too loud for him, if you can imagine that. So anyway, that is the story of the cicadas. So when I was 19, I first experienced them uh, in 1970. Of course, then I experienced them again in 87, and I knew what I was going to encounter to some extent at that time. I had already moved down here to Orange County, and the numbers of them that came up just in our yard, in our surroundings, in the forest around us, was just, it's just astonishing. I mean, there would be some place, I remember actually that year I was running for county commissioner, and I was going door to door in various places in the county, and there would be places in town, in the little town of French Lick, which is also here in Orange County, and the home of basketball legend Larry Bird, in case people wonder where they've heard of this name, French Lick, before. Walking around in French Lick, the sidewalks would be so littered with the exoskeletons of the cicadas that had already emerged and flown skyward that you could not take a step without crunching dozens and dozens of these exoskeletons. It was really quite remarkable. Of course, 87, fast forward to 2004, you know, suddenly I'm a much older human being and I get to experience them uh, once more. And then the most recent episode here in southern Indiana was 2021. And lo and behold, my first exposure to the cicadas was in 1970. And here it is 2021. And I've gone from a 19-year-old myself to a 70-year-old. So the, the number 70 is significant for me in terms of my relation to the cicadas because the last time I heard them, I was 70. And by the time they will come around again, if I'm lucky enough to be here to experience them one more time, I will be 87. And I have little doubt that if I am lucky enough to live to hear them one more time, that will be the last time for me. Now, in terms of who eats them, it's really remarkable. You know, anybody who likes to go fishing is not going to have much luck getting any fish to bite in the years when the cicadas are emerging. Everybody eats cicadas. Possums, we raise possums, orphan possums, we rehabilitate injured and orphaned possums. Possums love cicadas. Raccoons eat them, squirrels eat them, birds eat them. Our chickens, we don't need to buy any chicken feed in the cicada years because the chickens just go crazy gobbling them up. And of course, the survival strategy for the cicada is to emerge in such extraordinary numbers that they completely overwhelm the predators that would otherwise uh, significantly diminish their populations if they were to come out uh, you know, in, in, in smaller numbers or with greater frequency. So they completely overwhelm those beings that eat them. And there was an interesting piece of research that came to light that I first uh, encountered uh, at their most recent emergence in 2021. And that was because this brood X, X being the Roman numeral for 10, the 10th brood, is the most numerous on planet Earth, this brood X. So I'm fortunate to get to experience the largest brood of these periodic cicadas. It turns out that there's a fungus that infects cicadas and actually consumes them from the inside out and causes their rear ends to, to fall off and be replaced by this white sort of crystalline substance. And it turns out this crystalline substance contains a number of chemical uh, uh, elements, including uh, psilocybin. And so, uh, and also, uh, what's, there's another one, a form of amphetamine. So this remarkable fungus that uh, infects cicadas also is the only non-plant-based source of the chemical ingredient in psilocybin and this other uh, substance called cathinone, which is an amphetamine. And the speculation from scientists is that this somehow uh, increases the cicadas' intense desire for breeding. 
the cicadas, interestingly, in uh, Greek mythology, let's see, I, I found this as I was looking for this up. Uh, let's see if I can find this. So while you're looking, so that means that cicadas are in Europe too, if they are if they're in yes, Greek they mythology. Are. Yes, yes, they are, in, and in China. Yeah, I, like I said, I think they're in most of the temperate zones around the planet. And uh, I'm not finding it right now. But of course, what's interesting is that they're, like I say, their Latin name is magic cicada, and of course, magic is uh, is 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 closely tied to them. I think for, for the Greeks, they were associated with uh, eternal life because they seem to live forever, coming back periodically as they do. Okay, so I, I have another question. You, or Unless right. you want to keep looking that up, that's fine if you want to. No, you go ahead. I'll, if, if I find it while we're talking, I'll, I'll mention Okay, great. Um, so how big, uh, and now I'm not meaning how numerous, but how big geographically it would be one brood? Uh, that's a, a very good question. I've got the maps here. I just was looking at those. And uh, in the case of the um, the brood X, it covers most of the state of Indiana and portions of adjacent states. And hold on, where is that darn map? Well, so an, okay. Another question is: you have the annual cicadas. And then you have the ones 17 years or another prime number. But does that yeah. mean – so if there's there's a bunch of them in 1970, does that mean there will be no almost no sounds of cicadas in 1974? Or are there other, other broods who might be scattered in between, not separated geographically, but separated by year? By, by, by time. Uh, there may be instances of that, some overlap, but for the most part, uh, these areas are distinct and separate to where you will not see multiple emergences in any particular geographic area. I, I do believe that there's some overlap. I'm looking at the maps now. The Brood X includes virtually the entire state of Indiana, a significant portion of western Ohio, a little bit of southern and southeastern Michigan, but then there's disjoint uh, components of that same brood, interestingly, that includes southeastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and a little bit of the panhandle of West Virginia, and still part of that same brood X, eastern Tennessee, uh, western North Carolina, and northern Alabama. So all those are the same, emerging at the same time, even though they are geographically disjunct. And between all three of those geographic locations, that's perhaps why this brood X is considered the largest, is because there are so many that are appearing at different locations at the same time. So brood brood IX, um, and I don't, the, the specifics don't matter, but brood IX is geographically separate, and it also does it also emerge in a different year? Yes, see, that's the, that's why they uh, came up with the different broods, is each of these broods has its own 17-year cycle. So, uh, you know, brood one, for instance, 1978, 1995, 2012, 2029, for instance, Virginia, Western Virginia. Uh, brood six, 1983, 2000, 2017, 2034, and that's Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and so forth. Brood 14, another fairly sizable geographic area. Uh, in fact, they uh, let's go with Brood uh, 13. That's the one that's going to be around next year in 2024. So if anybody would be interested in experiencing the cicadas next year, and they tend to come out in May and June, depending on latitude, a northern Illinois, west I'm sorry, eastern Iowa, and southern Wisconsin, a corner of northwestern Indiana and a little bit of southern Michigan. That's the that's where they're going to be emerging next year in 2024. So people in the Chicago area. Now, of course, you got to think about this: that these cicadas are going underground in places that, in the intervening years, might become agricultural, 
might be paved over, might be subject to flooding for reservoirs and so forth. So there are lots of factors that are, I would say, impacting the ability of cicadas to continue with their cyclical uh, the cyclical existence. And another thing that I think bears consideration is that the most numerous land bird on Earth was the passenger pigeon. And, you know, Audubon and others, uh, other accounts from early European and uh, Euro-American contact with the continent described these flocks of passenger pigeons that would literally blacken the sky. And the, the flock might start flying over at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be flying over as the sun was setting, uh, you know, at 6 o'clock in the evening. So these are birds in the billions, literally, and they presumably would migrate to where the most abundant food sources were. And you can be sure that they were on some level aware of where these cicadas were emerging, or at least were in the process of looking for them to find them every year during those May and June months. And they, I wouldn't be surprised if you could say that they, the, the abundance of the cicadas contributed to the numbers of the passenger pigeons. Because while other species are more geographically limited, the passenger pigeons would cover great distances to find suitable food sources. And I think the cicadas probably contributed to the extraordinary numbers in which they were encountered by the native peoples and by the early European settlers. So I want to, I want to talk more about, about them ecologically, but, but I want to go back to metaphorically for a moment. And I was a beekeeper when I was in my twenties and thirties and um, beekeeping made me highly aware of my own mortality in that I was aware that a certain type of blossom might only last a week. And so I was aware that, you know, if I live to be 80, there's going to be 80 years times 10 days of apple blossoms. So only 800 days of apple blossoms in my entire life. And, you know, once, once the willows are done for the year, they're done for the year. Once the, I mean, dandelions bloom all year, so forget them. But once, you know, other, other species of plants are done for the year, it can be very, very short. And it was, it was really reminding me of that when you were talking about, you know, 1734, six, let's see, wait. Yeah, 1734, 68, 85. You know, the most most people can ever expect to see of these um, of these or to hear the cicadas would be would be five times in their life. Five times. I think you're right there that that, you know, that would be a very generous human lifespan to get to hear them five times. And just think. And they're only they're only around for 10 days, right? Two weeks. How long? No, they each individual may only be around for, say, two weeks. But then you got to figure that between the first early ones and the last late ones, it might be as much as a month, but not much more than that, you know, because and then the the vast majority of them are going to be in that central two week period. So, yes, in, in my life, I will be lucky if I get, what, 10 weeks of cicadas, the, the 10 weeks of the cicada experience. So no creature is going to peg its entire survival to those uh two-week period of great uh, feast, knowing that the intervening uh, 16 years are going to be a substantial famine. So they, they really, there's there are very few comparable analogs anywhere in that plant, animal, or insect kingdoms to what these creatures have come up with as a survival mechanism. But back to the metaphor, this is the thing that I find so inspiring about the cicada is the hope that our own experience here as humans in this world of, of deep pain, sadness, suffering, loss, separation, anxiety, all these things that befall sentient, caring human beings, that perhaps this is our underground phase, you know, that we as a species are going through a collective experience that is preparing us 
for a next phase during which we might emerge from this darkness and this sadness into a period of light and sound uh, that far exceeds anything that has delighted us in this particular iteration of our own experience as a collective uh, collective species of animals each sharing a slightly different interpretation of something very similar to what we all go through you know and the, the, the birth death dying yes we're all going to die but nobody knows what comes beyond there's been endless speculation needless to say and is our what is the part of us that continues to to sustain to survive when the part that goes away goes away some people say nothing some people say this is it this is all you get from the moment you're born to your death that's eternity there's nothing before there's nothing after my experience of the natural world is that there's nothing like that there's always a before and there's always an after there's a reiteration there's a reconfiguration there's a transformation there is something that continues there's either everything or nothing and there's really not much difference between the two of them there is always something and it's always re reconstituting itself into some new form and i happen to believe you know people ask what happens to people after they die and i have an equally compelling question that is where did we come from before we were born what is it that we were made from what is the source of this sense of remembering and recollecting and having been that comes with us into this life that perhaps is cultured and educated out of us but we as spirit beings know that there's a continuity and that just as surely as there may be something after the transition we call death there was almost certainly something that existed before the experience and the transition we called our own birth so that's for me the metaphor of the cicada is the notion that there's a before and there's an after and it's endless so thank you for that and um going back to ecologically i think this this huge feast it also kind of reminds me of of you know in a weird way of salmon that salmon provide this huge feast coming all at once for for a forest and for everybody who lives there and in the case of the salmon it's it's really if, if we think about it in terms of of food value it's a movement of food from the ocean of nutrients from the ocean up into the forest well, and to the land very interesting and so what's sort of happening with cicadas is it okay their 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 body mass comes from the trees do they do they parasitize off the trees or do they do they benefit the trees in any way you know that's a good question and here's another thing that you know i'm a forest activist i know you've spent a lot of your life in forest loving them studying appreciating them what we see in the forest is only the most visible manifestation of the complex web of life the vast majority of which appears out of our sight underground so here's the short answers we don't know people who've studied cicadas don't know i think i think we could say fairly conclusively that they are not in any way diminishing the ability of the very tree tree species on which they feast to continue to thrive survive and, and self-perpetuate so i don't think they're parasitic in any way to the uh, the components of the forest that they depend on but what is interesting is what is their connection to the mycelial filaments that are everywhere in the forest what is their connection to all the protozoa and the microorganisms what is this vast teeming life source that is the soil and what is the magic that is happening underground that produces these phenomenal manifestations of diversity and beauty and richness that we call forests and what is the role of the cicada in that in that symphony in that tapestry of life which mostly goes completely unrecognized unappreciated and, and poorly understood by those of us who live at the surface obviously there are people who are beginning to show how these chemical and electro electrical and 
molecular exchanges occur underground, and that's how the forest is actually one entity, a very complex entity system of processes and cycles and systems that all interact symbiotically to produce the many manifestations of life that we see at the surface. But with respect to what's happening underground, that is the great mystery to me. That is where the magic of inner mineral exist planetary existence is transformed into the living, breathing, singing, flapping, flying, swimming, singing, dancing, screwing, <laughs> living, dying, eating me mechanisms that enjoy bodily form up at the surface. It is a wonderful thing to contemplate how we fit into that system if we can just allow it to live and exist long enough to go on uh, without us humans crashing the whole the whole uh, the whole enterprise into something that will of course then be transformed into a whole new host of different kinds of species you know the life force will survive presumably on this planet or on others regardless of how poorly we treat this living mother earth that sustains us but hopefully we as humans will come to recognize the extent to which we depend on the systems that we don't even begin to understand that's great um so uh, some more some more basic cicada questions how far can yeah. they fly can they fly like as you're talking all of a sudden i'm thinking of rivers and um can they fly well enough to get across like the mississippi or, or across hmm. the ohio mississippi is a, a good question the ohio i'm certain they can but the reality is they have no incentive to go anywhere. What they are flying for is not to cover territory, but to find mates. So, so as long as they are in the presence of other cicadas, they will fly long enough to find a sex partner and breed. And then I don't know if they have multiple partners. I'm not sure how, how that works. You know, do they you know breed and then fairly soon thereafter die, or do they separate from this one partner and go find multiple partners? I have to say that I am ignorant on that. As far as um, the distances they cover, they have substantial wings, and I have seen them flying you know, fairly significant distances, but I don't think there's much incentive for them. And I do want to return to one thing you were saying about the salmon, and that is, of course, that there were salmon, Atlantic salmon, at the, earlier in, uh, in, in our history, and I don't know to what extent or at least anadromous fish that would do those same migrations up the river riverways of the eastern U.S. So presumably those salmon and trout in the east would have feasted themselves on those cicada and used their own migrations to transform or transfer those nutrients from across different, fairly wide geographic spaces. So I think that that's a very interesting observation you made. Well, thank you for that. And um, I know Atlantic salmon uh, don't have to die when they spawn. So that could also have been a transfer of nutrients from the forest back to the ocean. If they very could eat them up here and then they, they go back out. Um, the reason I was asking about the, the rivers is just if, if, if an area was somehow, if, if, the, if there was some catastrophe that caused them part of the brood that was across a river to die, how would they re-inhabit that area? And yeah, and then there's this whole question about why are there so many different broods across different geographic areas? I, I don't know to what extent they migrate. You know, how much variability is there in these fairly amorphous blobs on the map that represent the different broods? You know, and the overlap, the question, and then there's the 13-year and the 17-year. I'm not sure about the overlaps between those. I think we have to assume that there is there are some places where they have both 13 and 17, and maybe there's some places where they have two different broods, at least towards the margins of their territories, that would overlap. So I really don't know how they came to be so broadly dispersed, but we do know from you know what we what we what people have observed and the, the historical record that they do appear certainly all around the planet in these temperate zones and the history of them. I suspect there are people researching the genomes of these different cicadas to try and track 
the derivation of the cicada and where they may have first emerged and how they would come to have this truly remarkable survival mechanism of living underground for 17 years and then emerging in just unimaginable numbers. It, Wait. it is quite astonishing. So are these are these different broods, are they the same species or are they different species? They are the same species as yes, they are the you know, the magis cicada septendecim is what they're called, which just means seventeen year cicada. So they are all the same species. Now within the cicadas there are three within these uh, I believe within the septendecim, I believe there are three subspecies that each is characterized by a slight, slightly different song. Uh, the, there is a, so if if a, if broods were to overlap, they could interbreed then. Yes, yes. And so another question is: Do they have favorite types of trees to to attach to the roots? Well, that's an excellent question, and here's something that's very disconcerting to me, because I know for a fact that here in southern Indiana and presumably elsewhere in their range. Their preferred species is the ash tree. Maybe it's because the bark is more easily cut or the, the wood fiber more porous, more easy to lay their eggs in. But the predominant species in which the cicadas in our yard and in the forest around my home would lay their eggs were ash trees. Well, guess what has happened, Derek, since the last time they emerged? And this is heartbreaking. I think we spoke of this the last time we spoke, is that virtually every ash tree in the entire state of Indiana has died. Now, I suspect that the cicadas would be adaptable enough that they would find other species to lay their eggs in. But nonetheless, this just does remind us how delicate and perhaps um, vulnerable these interconnected webs of life are to disturbances in what might seem like just one isolated species, but to what extent is the absence of ash trees, and they aren't completely absent, they're still young ash trees, so maybe that will answer my question. And hopefully they will adapt cause, uh, to, uh, to the changing circumstances, the uh, emerald ash borer, which has com almost completely obliterated ash trees from the hardwood forest, the hardwood region, at least the hardwood region, as I'm familiar with it. You know, what will be the adaptation of the cicada? What will be the tipping point that might cause cicadas to, you know, I mean, who would have thought that the passenger pigeon could go extinct? Who would have thought that the buffalo, the bison, the American bison, would almost be driven to the, to the, to over the edge of extinction? You know, because they were so numerous, uh, it's, it's just astonishing, and, and it's definitely an object lesson in humility, patience, observation, understanding, forbearance. We've got to figure out how to live in concert with these other life forms that we don't even begin to understand. Well, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to interview you about this, is not only – I've only heard the sound – I've lived in the West my whole life, so I've heard that sound rarely, but when I have heard it, it's one of my favorite sounds in the world. So that was one reason I wanted to interview. But another reason is that there are so many uh, beings who have used as their survival mechanism um, the these explosions to sort of overwhelm predators. And I don't know if you know about this, but the single largest congregation of living beings by by mass that anybody ever knows of was the American locust, not cicada, but honest to goodness locust, in the late 19th century, and they were extinct within 20, 30 years because of the plow. And oh my goodness! And I did not know that. Yeah, check out American locust. Um, oh my gosh. And it, there was there was one swarm of them that covered. Oh, I'm making up the numbers, but it's like an area the size of Oklahoma plus Kansas or something. It was it was just trillions of tons or you know I'm again making up the numbers so don't quote me on it but but they I were understand. they were extinct within 20 30 years of that and uh, that is remarkable and it's the same I mean tragic and salmon you know salmon are in deep deep trouble and it was the same that the rivers would be just thick with them or in southeast asia the mekong delta catfish was even 30 years ago so numerous that some people called it the largest um 
by mass the largest migration on the planet, bigger than the Serengeti Plains. And wow. they're getting hammered by dams. And my, my point is that this – I know that, that when I have heard cicadas, they've been, as you said, everywhere. But if the passenger pigeons can be driven extinct, then this, this, this even makes me nervous for those who are that common. Uh, it does me too. You know, I mean, many people have commented recently on just in your short life and my short life how, and this is a sort of a terrible way to, to visualize it, but nonetheless, it's one that people often cite, is that when we were younger and you would drive around on a summer evening, windshields would get completely bug splattered. And now people are saying, well, wait a minute, where are all the bugs? Why? Is it just because cars are more aerodynamic now? No. There's been a planetary precipitous decline in insect populations and insect diversity, certainly in places where humans are there to measure it, of pollinators. You know, we know that 100% of the almond crop in California and everywhere else is dependent on bees for pollination. And we know that bee populations have been experiencing phenomenal declines. As a former beekeeper, I'm sure you've been tracking, you know, the, the thoracic mites and the various other uh, problems that bees have been encountering. It's happening in so many places. And of course, with accelerating warming of the planet, amphibians, something like 30% of amphibian populations are on the teetering towards, towards extinction. Uh, it is heartbreaking, heartbreaking. And of course, that is why we spend so much of our lives doing what we can to protect wild places, free-flowing rivers, uh, deep, dense forests, uh, whatever it might be. I know most of your listeners are probably dedicating a certain portion of their time and their efforts to trying to keep the wild in the world and the wild in ourselves. Because, you know, when you think about that word nature, it applies to two things the wildness beyond and the wildness within, you know, that is our nature. Our nature is to be part of nature is to belong to a larger community. And there's this thing that happens where we, we, we identify with a small subset of the living world and then we other the rest and that which we other, we can commit unspeakable harm to without even recognizing the extent to which that harm will swing back around and kick us in the butt. And unfortunately, there's a lot of butt kicking going on right now. And the the, the doom loops do seem to be, uh, the cycles seem to be occurring with greater frequency. Do you, this is, this is a different subject, but another one I wanted to hit. Thank you for all that. What did you, what is your experience so years ago, I knew. Okay, I love I love frog song. It's another another of my favorite. Oh my like Pacific tree frogs are are wonderful. And oh. I I was talking to someone once who said that she hated the sound because it sounded like screaming to her. <laughs> and so what I was going to ask is, people who live in that in those areas, do, is this is this is your experience generally that the people go, oh, I can't wait, this will be wonderful, or they go, oh my God, this is so horrible. I don't want that racket. Well, you know, uh, it does cover the gamut. There are people like myself who conserve one of the most beautiful sounds they've ever heard. And and the sheer volume and the intensity and the periodicity of the sound, the, 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 the cyclicality of it is just, it's transformative. It's trance music. But other people, it is jarring. It is discordant. It, it's scary. And so there are people who find it intolerable and there are people who seek it out. So I don't think that there I can generalize other than to say that it is a bit of a Rorschach test for how people experience the natural world. And people talk about going to nature for peace and quiet. Well, yes, in the wintertime, that's true. Certainly here in southern Indiana, when there's snow on the ground, you can experience a great depth of silence, which is something that the human spirit also needs. But the summertime in our deciduous hardwood forest is far from silent. There is everybody's out there screaming for a mate. You know, I think that's what most song really boils down to is, hey, over here, over here, come over here. I need somebody. 
So the forest in the summertime is just a magical, magical symphony of evolving sounds, you know, from, I mean, even just among the frogs, there's different frogs that occur early in the spring, later in the spring, in the fullness of summer, and all the way into the fall, you're going to get different, different sounds of insect sounds and amphibian sounds. And, you know, the, uh, the bullfrogs, just, just unbelievable. And something, of course, that is very disturbing around here is the death and decline of these bat species, some of which have lost 95% of their populations, 95% of their populations to the white nose syndrome. You know, so the insect diversity is changing because of the absence of the bats. We never used to have, I wouldn't say never, but mosquitoes were a fairly rare phenomenon because we have so many bats here in southern Indiana. We have all this karst landscape with all these caves, and the caves, of course, are ideal uh, winter habitat for the bats. So we used to have millions and millions of bats. And just in the evening over our pond, we would see dozens and dozens of bats, and each bat they say can eat its weight in insects every night. And you can imagine what that does for the mosquito population. You know, you go up to the lake states or down to the deep south, and summer times are intolerable outdoors in the evenings because of the mosquitoes. But here in southern Indiana, never a problem. Now we're finding that there are mosquitoes in the evenings because of the decline in the bat population. So the world is changing around us. There are many things to in, to give us reason for hope for the future, but then there are many, many other things that cause us to be concerned. So I know this is a terrible question to end on, but um, I don't know how to end an interview on cicadas. So do you, ha <laughs> do you have any final – I mean, what you said was really great, but do you have any final give, – give one last hurrah for, for, for how much you love cicadas here. Well, I think the, the metaphor, going back from the – Switching from the science, which my, like I say, my understanding is somewhat limited to the metaphor. I think the metaphor of the cicada is the one thing that really gives me the greatest hope, and that is that the power of the earth to reimagine itself, to transform itself, reconfigure itself, and to come back again for the next act. There's always a next act, and I know, I think you found some, uh, some, some sound of cicadas, but I've got some right here, and I'm just going to play that and put my phone right up to it, if you don't mind. Great. I think you can hear the word pharaoh in there, perhaps. Which oh, is, yeah. Uh, part of the, I'm going to go back over to it. But, Derek, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. We can either talk a little bit more or I can just put the phone back over to the speaker on my desk here. Um, no, that's, that's, I think this is a great note to end on. So, Thank you, Derek. Yeah, thank you. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Andy Mahler. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.